Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 33 for season 2, episode 7 of Star Trek Discovery, the episode Light and Shadows, plural. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I'm Captain Sabriel Mastin. Welcome back. Yes, welcome, Sabriel. It's such a pleasure to be chatting with you week after week after this fantastic Star Trek show. I know, right? Oh, each episode, I'm like, yes, I can't wait to talk about this. I know. Uh, the first three episodes of the season were a little up and down, but they really seem to have some momentum, some trajectory now. And I just, I can't wait to watch each episode and to brainstorm with you where we think it's going. Yeah, which has been very difficult this season. <laughs> but you've had some fascinating hypotheses, not theories. Right. <laughs> and, and I can't wait to see what you come up with this week, Captain. Well, I don't have, no, I don't have anything new. Oh, well then, uh, this has been Transporter Log. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. what happened? Should we get started? Yeah, there were really two main plots, so let's break that out into two TLDRs, an easy division of labor. Captain, since you're the one giving the orders, who should go first and which plot should they do? I'll go first. I'm going to do the time travel one because I like time shit. <laughs> Every single week you leave me wondering if we need to put an explicit tag on this podcast. Everything is cooler with the word time in front of it. It's true. And <laughs> since this is not network television, we get to swear if we want, I suppose. So go for it. <laughs> so uh, immediately, once Michael leaves the ship for reasons that Ken will get to, uh, there's a time thing going on. And this time thing is like, hey, I'm a big blue swirly in space. And they're like, hey, we're going to figure you out. Uh, no, no, for real. <laughs> Apparently, the Red Angel left some time or tachyon space techno babble and uh, discovery try to figure it out and then the captain pike's like hey i'm gonna bring a shuttle into that thing to get us a little closer because it's a little dangerous for discovery he does that and he brings ash with him for who knows why and he's like all right we're gonna put a probe in there and then the probe goes in there like oh no we're stuck in the time thing we're falling in time and then the uh they're stuck in time and discovery's like oh no how are we gonna get them back and then eventually the things let's see the probe that they sent in there comes back and attacks them. Five hundred. <laughs> I'll get to that in a minute. And then, uh, and Saru's like, "Hey, wait a minute! Stamets has tardigrade stuff in there. He can do stuff with time, just like he did last season." And they're like, "Yeah, that last season episode was great." And so they send him. They beam him over there, and they're like, "Hey, we'll get you back." And he's like, "Yeah, cool, all right." And they beam back, and there we go. <laughs> there we have it. That's it. <laughs> There's my TLDR. <laughs> You all right there? Yep. I just, yep. We're good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, and you're never wrong, Captain. (laughs) And even if you were, I would not object on the bridge where I would be undermining your authority. I would expand on many of those things in a moment. (laughs) Well, let's do the second TLDR later. Let's break down this first half of the episode. Okay, yeah. So uh, there's a time anomaly above um, Saru's planet. Which is Kaminar, which is um, a little concerning. <laughs> yeah, do we know why this happened? I mean, they say it's because the Red Angel is, they seem rather confident now that it is a figure from the future. I thought they were more confident after la- the last episode, but now they really seem certain. And somehow it's triggered this temporal anomaly? Yeah, which is weird because it doesn't, hasn't seemed to have triggered anything anywhere else that we know of, unless they just didn't stay long enough to figure it out. Yeah, everything else the angel has done has been very deliberate, and it seems odd that this would be an unintended consequence of its incursion. Yeah, it basically seems like this this is intentional as well, but we don't know that for sure, but it, it would fit past behavior. Interesting. Well, I, I'll need to circle back to that, but let's keep going. Ash is all ticked off that Michael went on personal leave. <laughs> I got a little kick out of this. Well, <laughs> Pike saying, it's personal, I can't tell you. That's what personal means. <laughs> yeah, Tyler, you were talking last week on Transporter Lock about how you didn't like the negative, suspicious vibe he has about everything. I still hate and it. Th- 
That continued this week, yeah, because I didn't feel that his criticisms of Pike were very founded. I I know he says that, oh, Pike, you're upset because you and the Enterprise weren't called in during the Klingon War, and you feel like you missed out on all the action. Now you want to get in on all the action. And at the end of the episode, Pike agreed with him, but I have not seen evidence to that characterization. Same. That felt so out of place. Just Ash's... Doing his, uh, yeah, I have all these things I say that somehow I have all this deus ex machina thought process. And I can see this, that we have not indicated at all to the viewers, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I just don't like his characterization this season. And the fact that this was sprung on us, I feel like this is something that we should be able to, as viewers, kind of begin to suspect on our own. Not just, hey, here's a plot point we didn't get around to putting in here. Yeah, I mean, there were times on TNG where the crew stood up to Picard because they felt that he was acting erratically, and usually it was because he'd been substituted with a doppelganger. I don't feel like Pike is making bad calls. And even Tyler said, you were the most qualified person to pilot that shuttle. Yeah, it felt so weird. I mean, like, the worst case of editing, I guess, this season, maybe? It felt to me like Tyler was projecting because he has missed out on a lot of action. He's never where he wants to be. I mean, first he wants to be on Discovery, but instead he gets sent to the Klingon homeworld. Then he wants to be on the Klingon homeworld and gets sent to Section 31. I feel like he's missing out and he's angry and frustrated and misplaced. And if somebody had made these characterizations about him, it would have seemed well-suited. Actually, this is quite true. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Because, yeah, it just felt so weird uh, that he did that. I wasn't even sure why he was on the shuttle to begin with. Unless he was like, I'm section 31. I gotta do the things because I think I'm so cool. (laughs) I too was surprised. I saw him get into the turbo lift with Pike, but Pike didn't ask him to get on the turbo lift and he didn't ask him to get on the shuttle. Yeah. I mean, I guess he just thought he had right to do it as a liaison, which he kept trying to shove down Pike's throat. Yeah. The chain of command is really interesting here. Pike said at one point, the chair outranks your comm badge, but... I don't really know how Section 31 is organized within the Starfleet hierarchy. Yeah, later on, they mentioned that at one point that uh, it's Cornwell's crew alluding to Section 31. I'm like, what? Oh, I missed that. Yeah. I was like, okay, sure. All right. I guess we'll go with that. <laughs> I guess an admiral in Starfleet outranks anybody in Section 31. Yeah, weird. I mean, Section 31 is like outside the law. Or above the law? I don't know. But, I mean, it's just weird. Nobody is above the law, Sabriel. That was weird. But also, uh, just outside of weird editing for that, I thought was neat the probe from the future that they just send out. Yeah, they sent a probe into the time rift, and it came back having gone 500 years into the future, been upgraded, and being sent back, apparently. That's, yeah, that's a little weird. It immediately made me think of the Borg, but it didn't have any traditional Borg markings, so I don't think it is. Oh, that's interesting. You know what it made me think of was Vidger. Oh, yeah, yeah. Could have been that. Vidger. Vidger. Yeah, going back to the motion picture, because that was an Earth satellite that got sent out into space and came back with all kinds of upgrades. But then also, yes, maybe it was the same people, but that was also 500 years later. I mean, the Star Trek movies, Star Trek 1 didn't happen five that later, much later than this. Oh, oh, I know. I mean, I'm not saying it's the same source. No, 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 just reminded right. you of it. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking maybe yeah. it's the same people who did it. Well, I th- again, novels aren't canon, but I think in the novels, uh, novels that I haven't read, admittedly, that Vidger was upgraded by the Borg. Yeah, that's been a beta canon thing for a while. Okay. And we know that the Borg technically had their first encounter with the Federation during the Enterprise era, which was 90 years ago. So it's not impossible that it's outside canon here. Yeah, such, such three-dimensional thinking. <laughs> That's us. Maybe it's from the prophets. That's what it is. <laughs> Maybe that temporal anomaly was a wormhole or a celestial temple. Maybe. So there's another thing that, um, okay, so this probe from the future was trying to hack through the shuttle into Discovery and seemed to infect Miriam, the cybernetic androidish uh, person on the bridge, because, uh, well, they were watching all this data or the hacking thing happen. All of a sudden, Three little lights go beep, 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 beep. And three little light beams come out of Arian going beep, beep, beep. <laughs> and so it seems like whatever was in that probe is now inside Arium. Or or the probe sent something through. Uh, or something was sent through the probe to get to Arium. 
Yeah, there's a lot going on here. I don't understand why a probe from the future would want to download the database of a past computer. That seems like it would just be antiquated at this point. And I don't know if it was trying to download anything or it was just trying to gain access. But it was like cycling through it looked like memory banks. I don't know. It was a little weird. Yeah, we, we get so many episodes and so many moments in this season where it's like, this makes no sense. I guess we have to wait. Yeah, and even though the shuttle was set to auto-destruct, Tyler was really intent on hacking at it with a crowbar. Yeah, yeah, he was just smashing that thing. But it almost seemed like he was trying to get rid of some anger. I don't know, maybe the Klingon in him was coming out and like just beat it until <laughs> it stops. I would agree that he has some things to work through. I'm still trying to figure out, though, and now this is no longer just uh, intellectual curiosity. This is relevant to the plot. What is Arium? I know it's been said they're going to reveal more information about this character, so... This has been a left and unanswered thing. Like, Data was the first android in Starfleet that we know of. And so, that means Miriam isn't an android. Uh, unless some history changes again. It's it's weird. Like, some kind of cybernetic being. Are they uh, some part human, some part not? We just don't know. Yeah, I'm looking at Memory Alpha right now. And she is described as a synthetic human hybrid. Whereas somebody else said that she's an alien or an augmented alien, or an augmented human. I mean, all of these phrases have been used to describe her. A uh, queer woman in can- from Canada is who plays that. <laughs> oh, that's right. And as you pointed out, which I had overlooked, it's played by somebody different in the second season compared to the first. Yeah, uh, and I was, I was, I found there, uh, let's see, some people are showing their Instagrams of all the people, and I was like, oh, they seem pretty cool. Oh, hey, cool. They're queer, and they're from Canada. So, hey. You're talking about Hannah Chessman? Gosh, the name. But the, the one from this season. We don't know if this is like a sleeper agent that the code is just in there and might influence her behavior. We don't know if her personality has been completely overridden and she is completely compromised. We don't know who we're interacting with in future episodes. Yeah, it's so weird. It's like there's nothing to go on. Nothing like, oh, this answers the thing. Like, no, nothing, nothing really answered the thing. Yeah. And I wish that they hadn't done this because I, I can't think of a time this has been done in Star Trek, but I just feel like. Well, I guess it's been done in DS9 with all the changelings, where one person mm-hmm. is pretending to be another. But I don't know. There's just something about the concept of somebody being compromised and having like a undercover threat on ship, on board. I, I don't know. I'd, I'm not a fan of it. Uh, maybe maybe it's... I'm still... Oh, yeah. That was another, another thing. Pike, by the end, Pike was like, maybe Ash was right. Maybe they are violent and have bad, mad, bad things mind for us. Like, that just felt weird. And that kind of goes here, too. It's like, well, maybe they're not going to be bad. Maybe they're going to reveal to, this is the only way it could communicate with us because some uh, reason. They kind of already did that with the giant sphere that exploded. Oh, the only way it can communicate with us is oh, what yeah, we yeah. perceived as an attack. Yeah, so. Um, but the probe, to your point, with Pike saying, well, it seems malicious, so maybe the Red Angel is, too. That seems valid to me, and I can see how that could be the case. And I'm not saying it isn't, but an alternative would be that the probe and the Red Angel are from the same future, and this is some sort of a temporal Cold War where they're going back in the past to try to change things to different ends. Yeah. Kind of like Sam Beckett and the Evil Leaper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I wrote something that made me think maybe the probe attack was... Um, here, I, I wrote... Uh, as Ash is beginning to argue with Pike on the shuttle, this is like, oh, you're only here because you need danger in your life. Um, that's exactly when the future probe attacked, preventing them from having this argument. Is it a plot, inco- plot coincidence or was it intentional? Maybe this is intentional that this thing made them interrupted a fight by making them work together. Oh, so you're saying that just like how the Red Angel was originally perceived to be a threat, but was actually bringing them to where they needed to be. Maybe the probe showed up when it needed to be to prevent more arguments between the... To get these two to work together, yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe it's just plot coincidence and nothing more, but uh, it seemed plausible since that keeps happening this season. I would say that the probe really made a mountain out of a molehill. Oh, you two are arguing, so I'm going to nearly kill you. No disagreement there, but uh, it forced them to work together. Worked so... (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard to figure out the probe's intention and where and when it came from and why. I mean, okay, so this is set around the year 2258. So if I were to go into Wikipedia and go look up the Star Trek timeline, 
22, so that'd be the year 27, so that'd be the 28th century, and nothing is from the 28th century. There are entries here for the 27th and 29th, uh, the 29th being when we see the Aeon-type time ship from Future's End, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the 27th century being when the Temporal Cold War uh, has some members appearing from. It could be a very vague reference to 500, too. 500? It might not have been specific. It might have been like... I see what you mean. Like, th that event happened 200 years ago. It was actually 250 or something like that, you know? I really hope this is this is not the Temporal Cold War from Enterprise, because that was not a hit with the viewers. That was brought up a lot on Star Trek boards this week, and I'm like, I don't see it. I don't think so. I don't see it either, and I think it would be an error for the producers to revisit something that was not popular. Yeah, um, I guess we'll see, but yeah, it doesn't feel like Temporal Cold War to me. A Cold War is usually fought by proxy, whereas this Red Angel is directly intervening. So this is a hot war, I guess you would call it. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of the Red Angel, did you happen to watch the credits this week? It changed. Yeah, they actually show the Red Angel now instead of what looks vaguely like a Romulan uh, crest. It's almost like the credits are being updated to reflect what the crew knows at that point. Yeah. I did notice that. And it's funny that you did, because I thought you always skipped the credits. Oh, I skipped it. I, I found out after. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, why would they change anything in the credits? And so, yep. I mean, most shows have one set of credits for the entire season, if not the entire series. So for them to change less than halfway through is surprising and not at all unwelcome. Yeah. Oh, if you ever watch Bulljack Horseman, uh, later on during the show series, they start changing the credits. Uh, with a show. I didn't know that until like this season, even though it's like five or six in. Oh, that's cool. I guess technically I also watched The Flash and I think they slightly tweak it every single week to show like little clips from the previous week. Oh, really? Interesting. Which reminds me, this week on Discovery is one of the few episodes that didn't start with previously on Star Trek yeah, Discovery. Yeah, I thought that too. I was like, well, that's a little weird. But, it was okay. nice to just dive right into the action. Like, I saw the show last week. I don't need to be reminded. And also, even those recaps are a little bit of a spoiler because they tell you which previous elements are going to be relevant yeah, this week. they always prime you. Exactly. You know, I'm on the StarTrek.com email list, and every Thursday they send out a little email saying, here's what you need to know for tonight's episode. Oh, really? And they include a single screenshot from the episode. It's the same one that you see on CBS All Access as the thumbnail for that episode. But sometimes even that is a spoiler. Like last week, the thumbnail showed Michael Burnham interacting with a bunch of Kelpians. And so just from getting that email, I immediately knew, oh, everything Sabriel said about the short trek being relevant is accurate because they're going back to the Kelpian homeworld <laughs> this week. And I, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, even though I'm the co-host of a Star Trek Discovery podcast. I don't want to know what's going to happen in that night's episode before I go in. And that one email, so now every time it shows up in my inbox every Thursday, I just click delete. Yeah, good call. Or save it for later, I guess. I also sort of have to navigate to the episode of Star Trek on CBS All Access without looking at the thumbnail, which can be tricky, but... <laughs> oh, I think they do not make it easy. <laughs> No, and I also previously told you how they put the guest stars' names in the opening credits. So I'm like, oh, I guess I know that Captain Georgiou is going to be in this week's episode. Ah, uh, see, I intentionally, well, besides the skipping, I still don't look at the uh, who's in it for that region now. Yeah, it's usually the same spot in the credits, so I know to just quickly glance away at that one point in the credits. Because I love the opening credits, I love the song, I don't want to skip it, but I also don't want to be spoiled. <laughs> anyway... But, but, you know, okay, so, uh, it's like, Tilly had some cool moments. She's not, she's doing her best not to swear while she's on duty, which is adorable. It's like, freaking awesome. <laughs> Things like that. And her little clips about adding time to everything makes it really cool, except for Time Tsunami. I thought Time Tsunami sounded really cool. Yeah, it seemed fitting. <laughs> hmm. I don't feel like any of the people who are on Discovery had any moment to really shine. Reese was kind of cool this week. Yeah. I, I, I mean, in a way to shine, I mean, like, this advanced their character dramatically. Uh, but yeah, we got to see more of the bridge crew doing things. Like Reese, this is the first time they've got to do anything. I wouldn't say that Reese's airtime this week necessarily advanced his character, but it was probably the most airtime he's had to date. Yeah, who knows how much they actually film and then cut, and then this time he's like, he actually got scenes. <laughs> yeah, yay. I'm glad he made it onto the <laughs> episode. Another character who played a major role in this plot was Stamets, of course. 
And you mentioned how he beamed onto the shuttle because he apparently is a fourth dimensional being or has tardigrade DNA or something. It's still, I found it a little confusing that he could beam onto the shuttle, but they couldn't beam the people back to Discovery without him being there in the first place. Especially when they got that close to Discovery. Like they almost got out of the time rift before they were sucked, started to be sucked back in. I'm like, that's a little weird. But then, you know, oh, the computer was having issues, which maybe have hampered it a bit. Because they're like, hey, he needed to calculate this. He needed to calculate the coordinates while he was on the shuttle. Oh, get, that, oh, okay. I suppose that's possible. I hadn't thought of that. Some of it felt a little hand wavy, and I just kind of went along for the ride. Yeah, just the fact that they were able to determine the shuttle's coordinates sufficiently to beam him there, but not beam something back. I don't know. I mean, he was the one doing all the calculations. He even said, he like, I just did this here. Tilly, beam me over. And she's like, oh, God, I was afraid you'd say that. Okay, there was a good moment. There was a good moment. He's like, Tilly, you've got this. Believe in yourself. Before he said, believe in yourself, he said, believe in the math, which is interesting because when Tilly caught that asteroid, she said, it's the power of math, yep. people. Yeah, I think it was a fun little callback. She needs to be reminded of her own impressiveness. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And also, trust yourself to... He said, I wouldn't trust anybody else to beam me over. And then all she does is just move a slider up. I'm like, anybody could have done that, Tilly. Come on. We know there's more to it than that. It's it's future technology. <laughs> we don't know what there is that's more to it. We just know that there is. Right. Ugh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> At least one more thing I want to say about Same. this plot is the shuttles... I think this is the most we've gotten to see of one of the insides of the Discovery shuttles. Specifically, I want to call out all the analog switches. I loved that. And uh, yeah, there, there, someone took a screenshot I missed on the dashboard. Did it reveal anything interesting? No, but uh, <laughs> but it was there was Easter egg on the dashboard that I missed entirely. Well, that is interesting. What did I miss? Some of the labels on the uh, Discovery shuttle that we saw in this section had uh, the labels TNG, VOI, DS9, and ENT. Yeah, the short names for the other Star Trek series. That is amazing. How did I miss that? It didn't have TOS, though? I don't see that one anywhere. Oh, or TAS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or TAS. Nope. <laughs> TAS is not canon. <laughs> that is really cool. I totally miss that. I love it. I think it's appropriate. And it was just also quite a departure from all the very high-tech interfaces and holograms that we've seen on the Discovery Bridge, like all these vertical interfaces, these glass with images projected onto them. And here we have actual switches. It seems more appropriate for the TOS era. And I don't know how they managed to explain that, oh yeah, the Discovery is really high-tech, the shuttle is really low-tech, but I don't care because it was cool. Yeah, I mean, even I feel, I think the tactile, I was Tom Paris, like tactile uh, feedback is way better than the button like that because like, even on I never played games on my phone because that are advanced because of the oh just touch here to jump I'm like no I'm not going to do that there's no button I need contact like I need tactile feedback so that's why I prefer my console and yet in the DS9 episode the visitor when they are in the future trying to retrieve Cisco and they get on the Defiant and they're like ah oh, tactile interfaces how did we ever get by with these right and that was always weird like that's never going to happen <laughs> Are you sure? Nope. Even in that movie, Her, about the artificial intelligence in your phone that you fall in love with, the main character, his main job is to write letters, to ghost write letters for people. And he doesn't touch a keyboard throughout the entire movie. He dictates. Yeah, it's all AR. AR? Uh, it's, 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 isn't it AR interface? Like alternate, alternate reality or augmented reality? Excuse me. The only interfaces I saw were flat, but he was it was all voice to text. Okay, yeah, it's a little foggy. It's been a while since I've seen it. I could have sworn it had like little projectors, but uh, my bad. So maybe in the future, we just won't be touching anything. We'll just be talking to them. It's possible, or thinking at them. Oh, God. And then we'll all be like Arium. <laughs> so I think that's it for this plot line. And wow, that's a lot of the episode. Is there time for another TLDR? Uh, we might have a few seconds. Okay. Let me see if I can get through this. So Burnham goes back to her childhood home on Vulcan to ask Lady Amanda if she has seen Spock. And Lady Amanda is recalcitrant and eventually confesses, yes, he's here. And she takes Burnham to Temple, where Spock is there all this time. He's been hiding right on Vulcan. Or maybe not all this time. Recently, he just showed up like a few days ago. And he is muttering to himself, 
he continuously repeats the concepts of logic or these numbers that make no sense or lines from Alice in Wonderland. Sarek shows up and says, you need to take Spock to section 31 because that's the only way he's going to get help. And the only way that you burn him are going to keep your job because otherwise you're defying orders again. So she takes him to section 31. They say they'll take good care of him. And then Captain George Yu corners Burnham and says, they're not going to take care of him. You need to escape with him and you need to start by pretending to fight me. And so they get into an awesome fight. Of course, Burnham wins. She grabs her brother, escapes, and in the shuttle, she decides to figure out what those numbers that he's been muttering mean, which we will get to. Is that the long and the short of it? That's pretty good. Yeah. Cool. So... Who do you want to, I mean, like I said, we'll, we'll save the cliffhanger for the end of this episode of the podcast. What leading up to that would you like to start well, talking about? I started the Discovery Time conversation. I'll let you discover, or just jump in wherever you feel like it here. Let's talk about Lady Amanda. She is still really mad at Burnham. I wasn't sure when she last left the Discovery how she was feeling. You said she was mad at Michael. You were completely correct. And she is still really holding that grudge against her daughter and we still don't even know why. Like, we know Michael hurt Spock somehow. And that's enough for Lady Amanda to hold a grudge. That I think that's a good why. I would want more details before I decide to hold a grudge. See, to me, that's that's uh, enough. Uh, no, not, not for me. It's enough for me to understand Amanda being that upset. If Burnham were a stranger to Amanda, then oh yeah. But she's her daughter. Adopted. I bet you a lot of families don't make that distinction. No, no, I would agree. But... This this is a Vulcan family. It's very weird. It's a blended family. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything to say about Amanda? Or is that pretty much... I mean, besides it was obvious that she was uh, lying with <laughs> Michael. <laughs> like, it was pretty obvious. Uh, there was a moment here that they were talking about... I can't remember the name here. Sarek was trying to use a Vulcan technique to uh, almost speak telepathically to Spock. And that is something we've seen before... I uh, think it might be related to the one we saw between T'Pol and and Charles Tucker. The mental link they had. It might be different. It might be about the same similar concept. Hmm. I wish I could remember the name of it. I mean, we we do know, of course, that Sarah can speak to Burnham because Burnham has part of his katra. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We did see it here already too. Right, so that was first seen in season one, episode three. But Spock doesn't necessarily have part of Sarah's katra. So that would have to be a different kind of connection. Uh, maybe it is. I, I, like I said, I thought maybe it was a, thought it was either the similar or some other different version of it. But. I mean, father and son do have a connection, I'm sure, but we don't know what kind of connection. Yep. Sarek, I thought, was the one level-headed person here. I mean, he showed up in the temple and confronted his wife and two kids, basically. And he, when he first said... Michael, you need to bring him to Section 31. I thought, wow, you're a jerk. But then he explained his reasons, and he actually got a little bit emotional. And I was like, oh, now that you mention it, that really is the least bad solution here. Yeah, yeah, it was the least bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's... I was like, yeah, I had the same reaction. I was like, no, we can't do this because of what I know about Section 31. But like, no, that makes the most sense. He's like, I will not lose both of my kids in the first day or in the same day. And um, But just before that moment, Amanda chewed him out in the most Vulcan way possible. <laughs> I loved it. What is the most Vulcan way possible? <laughs> Logic the heck out of at him. <laughs> people, I, I saw people online saying like, why wasn't Amanda being emotional here? What kind of human mother is she? And I'm like, no, this is the exact kind of argument you have with a Vulcan. If you just start yelling things that are at the top of your head, that's not going to get through at all. You have to speak calmly and logically. And she, she's like telling him why she was upset. And she says, try again, husband. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's silent for a bit. And after a few moments, that's when he says this whole thing, like the logically the answer. <laughs> yeah, she also revealed something about her son, which has never been known until now, which was that he was basically dyslexic as a child yeah which apparently in vulcan society is like oh dear <laughs> yeah i mean i mean we've never known that and i guess they would say oh you probably inherited that from your mother which 
would lend credence to all the bias that he faced as an adult. Like we saw in the 2009 movie when he went, tried to graduate into the Vulcan Science Academy and they said, it's impressive you've made it this far with your handicap. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. your human mother. And, you know, I guess they could have been talking about dyslexia being a handicap, which was inherited from his human mother. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I thought it was just interesting, like things we learn about Spock that don't break canon. And, and cool, we add more to this character. Now, just as I've been saying this, this makes me wonder, at one point, Burnham said the numbers that Spock had been repeating and which he had also carved into the wall of the temple were backwards. How did she figure out they were backwards? Was it because he was dyslexic? Uh, oh, you know, I didn't make that connection. I mean, it's possible, but it's not necessarily how that his dyslexia worked, but it's possible. The idea that dyslexics read things backwards is a simplification. It's more that things are all jumbled up and hard to comprehend. And so I, I even when I was watching the episode, though, I didn't understand how Michael had made that leap. See, for me, the leap, I made the leap uh, with her was through the the Wonder Alice in Wonderland story itself, like through the looking glass or in a mirror darkly, you know, like in a mirror. So you think Alice in Wonderland has some, has those lines or something like that. That's where like all these great episode titles for the uh, Mirror Universe episodes come from. And uh, if you're here, Mirror just made sense to me then. Alice in Wonderland Mirror. I didn't get the full picture of what it was that Spock was carving into the temple wall. Was there a, a mirror? There was more than just no, the no, number. no. Just no. To me, it was just the fact that it was the book itself made her think of mirrors. Okay. Me, the drawing itself looked like he was drawing. To me, I didn't get a posit to. To look for sure, but to me, it looked like he was just drawing around art that was already on the on the wall. Oh, okay. But I can't confirm that at all. But it did look. It's a, that's the idea it gave to me the impression. Because numbers, except for one, eight, and zero, look different when they're in a mirror. Yeah, he was drawing them all in common, which is nice of him. English <laughs> Federation. Oh standard. yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm still a little confused how she figured that out. I mean, it may have been the Alice in Wonderland, but I don't know. It seems, uh, it seems plausible to me. I think I would have to watch it again. Because uh, the whole scene was talking about Alice in Wonderland, and, she, and he started reciting words from that at about the same time she was looking at the numbers, too. The numbers he wrote on the wall and the numbers he was saying were the same as each other, right? Yep. Okay. So at least he was consistently backward. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about when they were actually on the Section 31 ship. Yeah. I love I love the scenes with uh, Jojo. She's just a fun character to me. Yeah, she is amazing, and I... We have not really gotten enough of what this actor is most famous for, which are some of the fight scenes like the one you DM'd me and also Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. We got a great hand-to-hand, close-quarters combat combat scene here. Yeah, when George was like, hey, you got to fight me. And Michael's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, she wastes no time. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, I, I had to wonder if George Yu actually was throwing that fight because Goodness, were they giving it their all and breaking interfaces and smashing heads into glass? Wow. Gotta make it look good for the TV. I guess so, because the cameras were definitely on at that point. I was very suspicious, as we all should be, of Georgiou's intentions here. Uh, well, she she allegedly said flat, flat up what she was doing. Uh, she's like, this will help you. <laughs> and uh, making Leland look bad helps me. There's probably more to it, but hey, it's a good start. Yeah, George, you also said, I know so much more about you, Burnham, than you can imagine. I thought that referred to her relationship with Mirror Burnham, but at the end of the episode, we find out there might be something more to this universe's Burnham than we realize. Uh, apparently, Leland is responsible for the death of Michael's parents. Which I can't wrap my head around because it was the Klingons who did it. No, it was the... It was the Vulcan logic extremist who did it. Let me double check here. Yes, this is from the episode, Will You Take My Hand? It says, they originally planned a vacation to Mars, but a young Burnham begged them to stay three more days to witness a nearby star go supernova, and then the Klingons attacked. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, so I thought it was the Klingons who killed Burnham's parents when they were on a space station, and I don't understand how Section 31 could be involved in that. I guess we will find out. Again, one of the situations that we talked about just a moment ago is like, we get so many questions and no hints at answers. And also, Leland must have been quite young when he was involved in that project. Yeah. Unless maybe the Klingons attacked, but he had a reason to kill them separately while after the attack. Who knows? It's 
we just don't know. <laughs> you know what? Now that you mention it, the only thing we know about Burnham's parents is that they're dead. Yes. And now apparently Leland had something to do with it. Maybe not direct involvement. Maybe it was indirect. They might have been Section 31 operatives who were trying to defect. Possible or just or anything. There's so many possibilities that it's weird. It, it's it, This season has been all about, let's give you these. I mean, even the whole series has been, we'll just give you tiny little threads, but we're not going to answer them at all in this episode or give you any clues until you know what to look for. For every question they answer, it raises two more. Yeah. When Georgiou first approached Burnham about escaping, I wondered if maybe she was doing that in concert with Leland and that they had both decided, you know what, the best way to find out what Spock knows is to let him guide Burnham wherever they need to go. And so let's let her think she's escaping. I mean, that is totally a Section 31 thing to do. It is, it is. But it seems like Leland actually was upset that Spock had escaped. So yeah, uh, more more (laughs) non-answers. God dang it. (laughs) And also, the reason that Burnham brought Spock to Section 31 in the first place was, I mean, admittedly to help her brother, but also per Sarek's observation, was to keep her job because she didn't want to be a mutineer again and be convicted of treason. The last mm-hmm. time that happened was when she attacked Captain Georgiou. And here she is on camera attacking Captain Georgiou. What does she think is going to happen to her job? Uh, yeah, actually, I actually hadn't thought of that. It's a good connection. I mean, she is now on the run. She cannot go back to Discovery. Like Section 31 is going to admit that this is what happened. <laughs> oh, I think they will. Oh, maybe, maybe. Or maybe it was all part of the plan. I mean, it seems like, I mean, it's very plausible that a traitor would be traitorous. I lied, but I am not a liar. I cheated, but I am not a cheat. Uh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes, exactly. So I, oh, you know what? One more thing I want to say. Mm -hmm. When Burnham was in the lab with Spock on Section 31's ship where he was sedated, I couldn't help but notice the significant amount of, of lens flare. Oh, I didn't catch it. I didn't catch it. And you know what? I was trying to remember the name of this episode, so I Googled Discovery S2E07, and the very first hit was on Reddit, and the subject line was, Season 2, Episode 7, Lens Flare? <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, Lens Flare. Marvelous, marvelous. Well, it's it's interesting because Lens Flare is seen by cameras. It's not really seen like that to the human eye, so it's a artificial artifact that's added to these shows and they're trying to make it dramatic and sometimes it works and sometimes it's just excessive and distracting and this kind of towed the line obviously it didn't bother everybody so i guess it wasn't too excessive but it's a it's a complaint that a lot of people had about jj abrams star trek movies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh <laughs> just with the lens flare you made me think something else i thought of when watching the section 31 ship uh, a way you know something was evil. These doctors are wearing clear lab coats. Clear as in like transparent? Transparent, transparent lab coats. <laughs> like, I don't know why. But it's a trope of feature space, feature sci-fi where doctors are wearing transparent lab coats or, or doctor's coats or whatever. Huh. I never noticed. <laughs> Just always like, oh, yep, they're evil. <laughs> you would think that since it's transparent, they have nothing to hide. I think that brings us to the end of the episode and it's big reveal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I screamed. when Burnham decided to put those numbers that Spock has been muttering backwards into the ship's computer and look for any match, which seemed like, oh my gosh, there's going to be so many of them because it's probably somewhere in Pi. No, she got one hit back and it was the coordinates for the planet Talos (laughs) 4. I was like, what? And that's what I meant when I tweeted at you. I did not see that coming. (laughs) Neither did I. Neither did I. Which is weird because earlier this week I had seen a bunch of discussion about Talos Four. What about it? Talos Four is the is the premise behind uh, the only death penalty in the Federation. Oh, that's right. General Order Four, I think it is. Basically, go there and his penalty of death. And why was this coming up in your conversations this past uh, week? Someone put it on on Star Trek subs like. Why is this a thing? Why is this the only one? Oh, so it had nothing to do with Discovery? No, no, no. It was just a discussion <laughs> interesting and I, I knew about this already but the fact that it just came up again was interesting but um tell us four this is the one from the cage this is the one from pike this is the one from the pilot 
That's right. Yeah, the cage, the menagerie. We saw this back on TOS. This is what established the character of Pike, which we are now enjoying on Discovery. Yeah, this was the original series, original episode. And you and I were discussing a month ago where in the timeline, where in Pike's timeline, this is all happening. And I looked it up online. It's in the Wikipedia entry for Timeline of Star Trek. The cage was set in 2254. Star Trek Discovery premieres in 2256. Yeah, so this is already after the events of that. Right. So if this is accurate and they're not retconning anything, then Pike was originally captured by the Telosians two years ago. So all of Discovery is happening between his first interaction with the Telosians and when he is permanently disabled and brought back to Tylos by Spock. Yeah. And if he was on Enterprise when this happened, it's very likely that um, maybe the General Order doesn't exist yet. And that no one else knows about those events except the Enterprise crew and anyone who's read the logs at Starfleet. That's a good point. But why would Spock want to go back there now? Another one of those season two things. (laughs) I I understand how Spock is tied to Talosaur. I understand how Spock is tied to the Red Angel. We don't know why these things are happening, but we understand that they are. But how are the Red Angel and Talos Four connected to each other? Yeah, that's so weird. And this brought me back to something I think I said in like episode one of one of the first episodes of we recorded of the season where uh, I was like Red Angel, Red Red Crap from Star Trek two thousand nine. Oh yeah, yeah, the Red Matter. Yeah, Red Matter. I'm going to draw a complete blank on the word matter, but like I don't know, something still kicking on here for me on that i haven't put that one that thought away yet like maybe something is connecting all of spock's life but that seems like almost a a third plot point where we have the 2009 movie that destroyed romulus we have the red angel which you thought might have something to do with romulus and we have talos 4 yeah yeah i guess the season two is not giving us much to work with and so this is just all these weird things about spock i know kind of trying to draw a connection here? Trying? Well, what we know about the Telosians is that they are able to project lifelike illusions that are tangible, I I believe. Yeah, that are tangible across multiple light years. Would that include the Red Angel? Would the Red Angel be an illusion? Uh, Well, it's leaving stuff behind, so I don't know. That's a good question. Right, and it's having some very demonstrable effects. Like, can a Telosian illusion emit a planet-wide EMP, for example? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, on the TOS episode, they said how the Telosians could make us think we're pushing one button on the Enterprise, and in fact, we're activating the self-destruct. You know, that's the kind of illusion that I'm accustomed to. So it's less tangible in effect and less consequential. I think i got to watch that pilot again. I happened to watch it about this time last year when season one of Discovery ended because oh, I was yeah? watching it with somebody who had never seen to it, uh, TOS. And so we went back and we watched the cage or the menagerie and to introduce her to say, hey, this is the captain that we're going to be seeing next season. Oh, neat. <laughs> yeah, so it's relatively fresh in my mind, but it still doesn't explain the tachyon particles because Telosians don't time travel. Yeah, so maybe that. We just don't have answers. <laughs> we have very few hints. Right, but we can still use the hints we have and all the rest of Star Trek lore, which other viewers may not have, to try to put together some sort of a hypothesis, which I'm which I'm failing to do. That's like yeah, all we've got is these wide 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 uh shots just to hoping cuz things we know about Spock, Red Matter, uh Red Angel, um he could see the images of the Red Angel, uh Talos 4 all of a sudden somehow getting into the lore, which has not been hinted at or not obviously hinted at up until now. We have a probe that was advanced 500 years in its technology and sent back in time to attack slash communicate with Discovery. Oh yeah, speaking of, the time rift had a very large explosion last second uh, right right in the orbit of Kaminar. Who's to say that's not going to affect the planet somehow? Yeah, we don't usually see temporal anomalies that close to a planetary surface. Uh, Time temporal anomaly. It sounds cooler that way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of threads, and I am not yet seeing how they connect. And you know what? In a few weeks, it's probably like, oh, duh. How can we not see that? It's very possible. When we actually finally get answers, it'll be like, oh, yeah. 
They were hinting at this all along. Does is this relevant to the Reddit thread you linked me to? Uh, no. About the captain's chair. You sent that to me. Oh, oh, you mean in the title sequence? Yes. Yes. Apparently, those digits have been on the credits since the beginning of the season. Yeah, when they show the the bridge or the captain's chair rather inscribed on it, there are a lot of numbers floating around in the opening credits. Always have been. The specific numbers that Spock has been muttering are apparently right in the opening credits and have been all along. Yeah. <laughs> but that's another one of those things like no one would have ever connected that because we don't know the coordinates to tell us for. Right. And I always thought like heading so-and-so mark so-and-so was relative to where you were. I didn't think that they were absolute coordinates. Uh, that was a – the fact that the computer said mark apparently is a – the viewers figured that was just an error on the parts of the creator or develop writer's the computer like apparently would not have used Mark appropriately. Okay. Yeah, so production error. Still, though, there, there were hints in the last season that Lorca was from the Mirror Universe. I think there was some sort of a publicity shot that showed him with a plaque that said ISS Enterprise or ISS Discovery. I don't remember that. And also, he, you know, he had keyed in some numbers into his captain's chair to make that jump into the Mirror Universe. And so when you start talking about numbers on the captain's chair, I was like, we've seen that not go well before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just hope Pike is who he says he is. I don't have a question. I think he is. Uh, the Reddit link that I sent you was referring to the <laughs> scene where after he got back from the shuttle, he said, oh, it's good to be back in the chair. And somebody on Reddit commented, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> referring to what his ultimate fate is, unfortunately. Yep. Which is sad. Which, okay, so, um, oh, there's some weird cuts in this episode. Like, here, like, right when he says that line, it, um, Discovery warps away from the exploding time thing. No one on the ship seemed concerned that it would affect the planet. So apparently it wasn't in danger. I don't know. It was a weird. Yeah, I mean, they were trying to survey it with that probe and then with the shuttle. And I don't know that they were successful in either attempt. So they might not know what the consequences might be. Yeah. They just didn't seem concerned. I admit that there was some strange stuff happening in this episode. <laughs> and I guess we'll get more answers soon. We hope so. I mean, the season is less than half over. Uh, and we also have gotten some news about other Star Trek shows. So we know that Captain Georgiou is getting her own show. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that Captain Picard is getting his own show. Some additional details that have come out are that it is a 10-episode first season. And they've revealed who some of the other characters are that he'll be interacting with. And I didn't recognize any of them. I so honestly I don't have think... not looked at those either. I briefly glanced at it. I kind of stopped reading when it said one of the characters was a hologram. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was mostly looking for names like Riker and Crusher and Data, and I didn't see those names. Oh, it's not going to be like uh, best, all, all good things? No, sadly. But Jonathan Frakes will be directing some episodes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So that's neat. Uh, we know that Lower Decks is coming out. Jonathan Frakes says that he has seen some of it, and it's hilarious. Well, that's good. That's good. There's also another Star Trek animated show. This one aimed at kids, and will air not on CBS All Access, but on Nickelodeon. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, I guess this news is like a month old, and somehow you and I missed it. Yeah, I missed that entirely. But hey, Avatar was on Nickelodeon, and I love Avatar, so. Well, there you go. It, mm -hmm. it could be great. It could be. Hopefully. That's not much of a basis <laughs> i just hope they're not oversaturating the, the market uh well we'll turn out like star wars if it does oh god uh and then speaking of saturating the market you and i have some exciting news yeah the whole world's got more of us coming soon <laughs> yeah on an individual basis at least we don't have any new collaborations at this time to announce but what are yours uh i'm gonna be on a panel at pax east on saturday afternoon i think it is about women in esports that's awesome. Have you yeah. done panels like that before at PAX? Oh yeah, I have. Let's see. I've done I've done tons of panels. I've done a panel I think at PAX every year since 2015, PAX East. And last year I wow. did one on esports. Nice. So what is the is there a new angle this year? I don't think so, except that I'm not the one who helps submit it. That's a new angle. <laughs> ah. This time I'm on someone else's panel. Uh even though I didn't moderate last time, but yeah. Well, that's a nice change. Kind of a same similar setup as last year, but different creation setup. How about that? Gotcha. And then um, my show Pulse Bomb Ready that I do on Overwatch Esports Headlines is now being hosted by my friend Tatiana's website, uh, Blink Recall, which does Overwatch news itself. So, hey. Fantastic. Is that a new site? Yeah, brand new. Just launched yesterday and then just brought me on there to host as well. Just uh, help, help each other, help each other. 
Awesome. Uh, there will be a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And I will be seeing you at PAX East because I have a couple panels of myself. Yay! I have one Saturday afternoon called The Return of Couch Play, which is talking about how so many games nowadays are played online that offline local games are actually kind of in the minority. And what is it like to make a game for that audience in an online world? And so I'm going to be talking with people who have made games like Moon Hunters or Johann Sebastian Joust or Joggernauts and talking about those games. Oscar. And then Sunday at PAX, that is March 31st on at 1.30 p.m., I'll be doing another panel called The Art of Craft, Inspiring Game Creation. This will be me interviewing people who take characters and levels and concepts and inspirations from video games and turn them into cakes and shirts and <laughs> scarves and wallpaper, etc. Awesome. I was inspired to do this panel when I went to my friend Johanna's house, and she had decorated an entire room of her house to look like the Forest Temple from The Legend of Zelda <laughs> Ocarina of Time. At least it wasn't the Water Temple. Oh, gosh, then you'd never get out. <laughs> but I just saw this, and I'm like, we need to find a venue to showcase your work. That's and cool. that was the inspiration. And so I called on some other people who I know, some from the local Boston area, some who I've coordinated panels with before. One person whose Kickstarter I backed, and we're all going to get up there and talk about art and craft and games. Sweet. That sounds like awesome. Yeah, it'll be fun. So that is what is going to be keeping us busy for the next month? Uh, the next week, I'm going to be traveling, so I don't know what that means for this episode's air date or the next ones, but we will knock them out like we always do. Hell yeah. All right. Until next time. Uh, hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. Oh my gosh, we're recording. All right. Oh, now, now you can't stop. Once you hit that button, you can't reactivate it for 28 hours. <laughs> what? <laughs> there was an old. Did you not watch Prices Right growing up? I did. Uh, the match game. Whenever, or not the, no, no, the, fi- the one, not the match game, the one where they had the range game, the range game, where it goes up and down. And uh, Bob Barker would always say some joke things like, all right, make sure you can only press this button once. Make sure you do because we can't restart it. And then he would make up some random length of time. <laughs> like, we can't restart it for three weeks or we can't restart it for 82 hours or something like that. I love how wonderfully analog The Price is Right is. Same. It was so fun going there. Going there? I've been on, I, I went to The Price is Right taping. I went to a taping in early 2000s. Really? I went to a taping in 98. Nice. Hey. I think I was this close to being on air, too. What stopped you? Um, well, I didn't do the choice. But uh, <laughs> so you know how you, I sort of did the same uh, rigmarole role where they line you all up and interview you like rapid fire. Yep. Oh, yeah, we did that. Well, you could see that the producer was interested or not in someone because they would uh, kind of ask a question. The person seemed to have no pizzazz. They would keep going just instant, like, go, go, go. Well, the person kept asking me questions. And eventually, I was doing my best to avoid it, but I accidentally revealed that at the time I worked at Walmart, and they don't want anybody who works retail on here. Oh, why not? Because the game is a retail game. They don't want anyone who might. Oh, I see. Yeah. I didn't know you worked at Walmart. Yeah, I did that for a few years. And so, huh. uh, who should get on with the person after me, right next to me? Oh. And he played Plinko. Oh, my favorite. Yeah, so, I don't know. It, it always made me feel like this was the closest I've ever been, uh, I was like that close. It always just felt like I was that close to being on there.